The next reading of Holy Scripture this morning comes from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 to 34. And today, uh, as we work our way through this, we've read it a couple of times, but we'll focus on verses uh, 30 to 34. If you'll stand for the reading of God's holy word. Mark, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat on it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among Thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But... Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. 
With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when, <clears throat> when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. So far the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. You may be seated. And as we turn to consider God's word, let us pray for his help. O Lord God Almighty, who is above all things, we are thankful that you are the one who makes your word powerful. We are thankful that despite our disappointments and the way that we wish we could see more of your kingdom in the world around us, that we know that you have promised despite small appearances, your kingdom is and will be great. And we thank you for that promise. And we thank you that we belong to the dependable God, who holds fast to his word. And so as we come to this portion of scripture, we pray that you might give us insight to treasure up this truth all the more, to know more of your kingdom, and namely how it is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are significant. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts to love you more, to serve you better. And we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So there's a scene in the movie Elf where Buddy the Elf is testing a, a long line of jack-in-the-box toys uh, to see if, if the jack actually pops out of the box properly when he turns the the handle. Uh, And every time as he cranks the lever, uh, he would be surprised and jump when the jack popped out. Right? It was as if he never learned to expect these toys do what they were made to do. We can sort of relate, right? In one... Respect, every time we come across a a square box, we don't expect it to house a spring-loaded clown. Um, And so you can see how it's surprising 
that some box would have one jump out. And on the other hand, if, if, if someone told us that particular boxes have surprising content that a jack-in-the-box has, well, we would be remiss to be shocked when it turns out to be true, wouldn't we? And the point, of course, is that sometimes an unimpressive vessel can have surprising content, but at the same time, we should stop being surprised that big things come in small packages if we are told about it. I think we can relate more specifically to, as Christians, thinking about God's kingdom. We very easily forget, on the one hand, that the kingdom of God is a great force that will encompass all things, but initially comes in an insignificant looking package. On the other hand, we also very easily forget that we have been told what great thing to come is in the box. And yet we we seem to keep being surprised both when God's word has the appearance of an insignificant package and then that it has tremendous effects. We're surprised on both counts for some reason. Let me put it another way. We often think that God's kingdom has to have a significant looking package appearance in order to have a big effect. We think that things have to look special for the kingdom to work in power. And in Mark's gospel, we have continually seen the contrast between what people wanted the kingdom of God to be and what it truly is in Christ. God's kingdom comes in the gospel through the church for salvation from sin and its effects rather than overturning the Roman Empire. Religious leaders of Jesus' day struggled to hear that they were not righteous enough on their own to warrant membership in God's ultimate kingdom. They, They thought that because they had kept the law well enough, the Messiah would come and and create the sort of culture they wanted. And Jesus continually pointed them to the true nature of his kingdom. One that was not about any earthly culture or worldly power, but about bringing the kingdom as the power of forgiveness and restoration among and amidst every nation and culture. For the redemption of the people of God. Jesus' kingdom will be the greatest. But in this age. Appears to have an insignificant packaging. Like the contrast between a mustard seed and its tree. In Mark 4. This whole sweep that we've been considering. Jesus gave a series of parables about the nature of God's kingdom to show how to show how it is present in this age to show its manner of being among us and today we take up this parable of the mustard seed 
namely in verses 30 and 32 to 32, and then there's a conclusion. So let's, let's read the, the verses about the parable again together. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So the parable contrasts how God's kingdom has the initial appearance of insignificance in this age, but grows into the greatest tree with room for all who would take shelter in Christ. It again, this parable again exhorts us as God's people, this time encouraging us to find hope in the contrast between how God's kingdom is perceived today and what it is and will be at the end of all things. We learn that we should not We learn that we should not underestimate the proclamation of God's kingdom, even when its initial impact seems small. Our main point is that we find comfort in God's promise that his kingdom has a small beginning. We find comfort in God's promise. That his kingdom has a small beginning. And we're going to think about this together in three points. Surprising results. Sovereign blessings. And sure promises. So let's think first about surprising results. So this this first. Or sorry. This this last parable uh, in this series. About the, the mustard seed emphasizes the the dramatic results of preaching the gospel. In the ancient world, the the mustard seed was proverbially the smallest seed. It was kind of the paradigm of small things. And Jesus' point in this parable is, is the contrast between how small the seed is and the size of its crop. It's that difference that is in focus. The the mystery of God's kingdom then, since all of Jesus' parables concerned the secret of God's kingdom, is its eventual greatness. And so this parable with, with the tiny mustard seed ultimately producing a plant of impressive dimensions helps us to understand the the present meekness but future glory of God's kingdom. The, The issue is that the gospel does seem foolish to the world. The value of a Jewish carpenter dying on a cross 2,000 years ago is lost upon those who cannot see what the kingdom of God is truly about. Even in the church, Christians have long struggled to see how the simple 
proclamation of good news that Christ died and rose to free us from sin and death. How could that possibly be enough to bring people to trust even in that very message? And the problem is not new and did not just arise with the advent of seeker-sensitive churches more eager to entertain than evangelize unbelievers. After all, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of God is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Much of this epistle's first section outlines why Paul was committed to the, to the simple, straightforward proclamation of truth, rather than flashy rhetoric and tricks, precisely because God had promised to work through the weakness of his servants to glorify himself as the gospel is successful. And so the, the problem is, is not a new one, and that gives us assurance That we're not up against something that God has not anticipated. Indeed, he gives us his word to show us our response. And so the the gospel is, in one sense, a strikingly unimpressive message. Our champion, our savior died and never overthrew the empire. And yet, that's just the mustard seed half. right? The mustard tree half is that Christ rose from the grave and so defeated sin and death forever. As has always been the case, it does not follow human logic that this message proclaimed by simple men would have cosmic level implications. And that is why the results of preaching the gospel of God's kingdom are so surprising. It's it's intended results, the results that God means it to have. Well, those results have cosmic magnitude, but most people look for earthly success. And that's not the way that God does things. But it is exactly the surprise of the gospel. Our good news it may appear to be the meekest of all messages, the smallest of all seeds, we might say. But when the seed does grow, the, the power of that message is big enough to rip your souls from the clutches of hell, big enough to transform lives, and big enough to bring us into submission to the God who gave his own son to have us as his family. The point of this last parable is to show how the gospel is much more powerful than it may first appear to worldly sensibilities. The gospel appears like a mustard seed, unimpressive and small, uh, announcing the death and resurrection of a man whom we've never met in person. Why should that news interest the whole world? Because it's the only message that can grow from an unimpressive appearance into what overturns the grip of sin and death over us all. The contrast between mustard seed and mustard tree shows the surprising results 
shows that the surprising results are that a message about seemingly unimpressive things proves to be history's most powerful news. That brings us to our second point. Sovereign blessings. Sovereign blessings. So I've argued that our parable teaches us that God's kingdom may appear unimpressive in its form for this age, but grows in the next age into unimaginable dimensions. And a question that we raise typically at this point is, what is it that gives the gospel this power? If the gospel is this powerful, why do some believe and others not? If the gospel is so powerful, then why does it not bring every person who hears it to faith in Christ? And Mark helps us see the answer in verses 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so here, Mark wraps up this whole stretch of parables, telling us that Jesus taught publicly in parables, but privately explained their meaning to his disciples. The best I can tell, and I'm I'm guessing it's true because Mark tells us that, and it's the word of God, the remainder of this gospel demonstrates that Jesus' statements to the wider audiences were parabolic. And his practice then, and, and then the more specific things, the clearer things, were to his disciples, his followers. And his practice then corresponds to what we saw earlier in, in verses 10 and 12. Namely, that parables prevent those outside from clearly understanding Jesus' teaching, but make the secret of God's kingdom known to Christ's followers. Now to just land the plane really precisely and clearly, Jesus chose who would understand his message. Jesus decided to whom the message would be clear. God is very concerned that we know that he is the one who brings us to faith. None of us can believe the gospel unless we are brought to faith by the sovereign work of the Father in Christ through the Spirit. John 6.44, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and tells them outright, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Matthew 11, 25 and 26, Jesus prayed, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Christ praises God. That some believe him, but but others don't. Because he knows it's 
God's good will. Because God wants you to know that you trust him because he has been gracious to you. God's sovereignty in our belief cuts both for admonition and encouragement. The harder part for admonition, if if you don't believe in Christ, well, don't be prideful as if you see the world more reasonably than Christians do. Do not think that Unbelief impresses God or his people. That you don't believe means that as of yet, God has not done his gracious work to bring you to faith. Your lack of faith means that God's judgment still lies heavy upon you. Do not steel yourself in opposition to the truth, but now in these moments even seek God in earnestness that he might shatter the walls of your unbelief. And make you his. Now on the other hand. For encouragement. Believers that. I hope you you feel the force of this. That you do have faith. Means that God has loved you. You so much. That he decreed that you would believe. God loved you enough not to leave any aspect of your salvation in your hands, but from top to bottom, God authored your salvation. God ensured that every aspect of your everlasting life with him belongs to him and is under his authority. And so, believer, take heart. And know God's love, because just like with the disciples, Jesus decided that you would understand his message. When Christ came to procure redemption, he had you in mind, believer. You, as an individual by name, were on Christ's mind when he died on the cross. And God made sure that you would come to faith, ensuring that you would understand his kingdom by sending his spirit to change your heart and give you faith. God gives sovereign blessings by growing gospel seeds into true faith. And that brings us to our final point. Sure promises. Sure promises. So I claimed earlier in our main point that this parable grants comfort by the hope residing in the contrast, in the contrast between how God's kingdom is perceived today and what it will be at the end of all things. Whereas the previous parable of the the farmer and his seeds helped us to see the the pattern of, of Christian calmness during the waiting period for the harvest. 
This parable of the mustard seed stresses the difference between God's kingdom's present and future appearance. And comfort lies in the kingdom's promised small beginnings. I know that that seems like a weird thing to say. When we look around the world and see that it does not look much like the kingdom of God, too many Christians panic as if something is not as it would be if the church would just get things right. But take heart, believer. God promises that his kingdom has small beginnings. While nothing may be as it should be, well, God has determined that it be just as it is and told us so. And it helps us remember that we are pilgrims here and that our home is in the age to come. We need not be comfortable here because we're not yet home. This world will not, this side of Christ's coming, this, this world will not turn into the kingdom of God. No matter how good it might be or get, wherever in the world we may live, it will not turn into the kingdom of God. Even though we see its small presence, like the leafy little blades poking out of the soil. And that dotted presence of God's kingdom is the church. The outpost of mercy and grace. The embassy of truth and righteousness. Where love means talking about what is actually good and beautiful. The sprouts of God's kingdom that, that are the gathered plots of the church meeting to worship God. Not, not anything that we build on this side of Christ's return are what is truly wonderful in this world. I hope you hear me clearly here. All of us have at least one. And so whatever feature, whatever feature of our culture disappoints you the most... It will not last forever. But, but, look at the believer next to you. No, I'm serious. Look at the believer next to you. He or she will be loving you everlastingly. That doesn't end. And that love that we give one another now just points us to Christ's gigantic love that is truly heart captivating and worthy of our reflections and affections. We overlook what is most beautiful in life when we look away from the believing brother and sister next to us to pine for some pristine culture that will never come. Daniel 4 20 to 22, 
uses the metaphor about the tree with branches expansive enough for all the birds to find their home to describe the extensive nature of, of even the Babylonian king's empire then. And Jesus here recycles that Old Testament metaphor, adding, intensifying it by adding that the ultimate tree that will encompass all things has room for all who would take shelter in it. And that begins as small as a mustard seed. It will be that. But right now it looks different. And Jesus, Jesus is happy for his kingdom to lack the appearance of outward glory now because Jesus won the ultimate victory through humility. But we have been told that this unimpressive box contains that spring-loaded clown. Just as our Savior appeared lowly, winning victory by dying until his glorification, so his kingdom appears lowly in this age, but will burst into history to end all ages and right every wrong when the harvest is ripe and Christ returns. And so don't be surprised that lowly packages have amazing results. It's fitting that the birds here, all the believers, find their home in a tree. Because Christ endured the cursed death of dying on the tree of the cross. There he bore our curse, saving us from sin. And so the tree of his curse becomes the tree of our refuge. Let us take shelter there. Let us know the love of God in the beautiful things he writes into our lives through the church's fellowship. Let us find joy that the kingdom does not look obvious now. Because it means that God's sure promises are true. And so we believe in the coming victory as well. Let us pray. Father God, our age loves to see things. We've put aside, uh, hearing through heralds, we've put aside even the radio. We want to see it. We want it played out in front of us. And Lord our God, we know that we, as your people, don't have the... Um, we, don't, we don't need... To see, because we believe in the God who is invisible. And so we know that whatever appearance things have around us, that your kingdom is great. Its crops will be amazing. And we see them starting here and now in this room as we look at our brothers and sisters next to us. Those whom you have redeemed. Help us take heart. Help us take heart. Whatever disheartens us, is temporary, is fading. And you have promised us that. You have promised us that the humility, the lowliness of this age turns into crops of unimaginable glory. Help us to rejoice. 
and look for the horizon of the future, knowing that our Lord and Savior will return for us. We ask it in his name, for his sake. Amen.